I don't believe in timeouts in parenting in terms of punitive timeouts, but I certainly believe in the parent taking a timeout and saying, you know, I just noticed how tense I am. I need to go on the balcony and take a few breaths. Or I need to sit and, and just think. Or I just need to listen to a piece of music right now to calm my autonomic nervous system. You know, so in other words, do something that we ordinarily don't do in our, most of us in our lives, which is to allow ourselves to have our upset emotions and give them some space without acting them out on the people that are close to us. So take that time and, and, and do check in. And don't be ashamed to acknowledge your vulnerability and your upset. Hi, my name is Rongan Chasti, GP, television presenter, and author of the best-selling books *The Stress Solution* and *The Four Pillar Plan*. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 106 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rangan Chatterjee and I am your host. So how are you all doing at the moment? Well, before we crack on with today's show, I just wanted to share a lovely message that I received yesterday when somebody contacted me to share that they are doing virtual book clubs at the moment and the book that they have chosen is my second book, The Stress Solution. They've all downloaded the audiobook and are listening to a chapter every few days and then meeting up over Zoom to discuss and share their learnings. Now, I'm sharing this in case it sparks an idea for you and your friends. There are so many helpful audiobooks out there at the moment. And if you are interested, all of mine are also available in this format. And as this group have found out, the stress solution will really help you to understand what exactly stress is why it affects us so much, why it makes us feel anxious, but most importantly, what we can practically do to alleviate it so that we can feel calm and in control. Now, that's something that we are all looking for at the moment. Now, today's conversation is one that I have been really excited about releasing ever since I recorded it, and that is because my guest is the incredible Gabor Mate. Many of you I know are actively avoiding coronavirus-specific content at the moment, but even if you are, I think this conversation will be highly relevant for you. Yes, there are some mentions of the current pandemic, but this conversation is so much more than just that. And in many ways, the theme of this conversation is universal and simply highlights what the external world can teach us about our own internal world. For me, Gabor is one of the most important voices globally right now. He talks a lot about addiction, but also about how our childhoods shape our adult lives and our behaviours. I can tell you that the first episode I released with Gabor on this podcast was episode 37. And at the time of release, I had never seen any one of my podcast conversations being shared that much. It really did connect with so many different people. And if you've not listened to it yet, I highly recommend that you put it on your list. 
Now, at the heart of Gabble's approach is compassion, but he's not afraid to shy away from cold, hard truth. He tells it as he sees it, and he has many, many years of clinical experience to back up everything that he says. Now, I'm recording this introduction to the podcast on Tuesday, the 7th of April, 2020, and I actually recorded the conversation with Gabor over Skype approximately two weeks ago. So before we start, I'd like you to think back to four or five weeks ago. How much of what you were preoccupied with and caught up in seems relatively trivial now? How much has the experience of coronavirus and this global pandemic already clarified what your values really are? When you see people standing in the streets clapping for their healthcare workers, or Europeans on their balconies serenading each other through lockdown, how does that make you feel? Well, a huge part of today's conversation is about what life lessons may emerge from this pandemic. There are tremendous insights in the podcast today about the value of sitting with our feelings and not just simply distracting ourselves from them with Netflix and social media. We also cover how we can avoid passing on our anxieties to our kids, as well as why some of us can be so judgmental of others during a crisis. Now, whilst we both fully endorse the medical advice on staying at home, we do discuss the social and economic damage that is arising from this essential policy. What will the consequences of isolation be on our mental health? We also try and unpick what may happen afterwards. Will we be so grateful to go back to our lives that we'll forget the lessons we've learned? Or could this challenge be the biggest opportunity for growth we've ever lived through, personally and as a society? I always feel incredibly lucky and privileged any time I get to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with this great man. I really think you are going to get a lot out of our conversation. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors who are essential in order for me to put out regular episodes like this one. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. Now, Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I have come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. Now, at the moment, having a routine is really, really important. And many of you have told me that as part of your morning routine, you will have a glass of Athletic Greens to make you feel as though you are doing something proactive for your health. Now, as you know, I do prefer that people get their nutrition from food, but I recognize that for some of us, this is not always possible. So if you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Gabor, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, nice to be back. Uh, if at a distance. If at a distance, yeah. Last time we spoke, um, we were face-to-face, maybe a meter away in a studio in London. And now we are, what, thousands of miles away looking at each other over a screen uh, through this amazing thing called technology. Um, I 
recorded an extra um, sort of special podcast last weekend with someone called Judson Brewer, who is a psychiatrist and a behavioral neuroscientist. And he was just saying where we talk about the virus and how contagious it is. He said, what's really interesting about the times in which we live is that we've got social media, we've got the internet. So we can, with the content we put out, we can sneeze on the brains of everyone all over the world. And I thought that was a really interesting analogy how, you know, we talk about the virus being contagious, but our thoughts and our actions and what that the panic and fear that we might put across to the people around us, but also online, that can also be contagious as well, can't it? Well, um, the um, director of the World Health Organization talked about an info infodemic as well as a pandemic. And um, I, I, I've wondered maybe the same thing that you've wondered, which is that on the one hand, the, the media and the internet has allowed information to be delivered to a lot of people instantaneously as necessary. And it's a good thing. But on the other hand, I also think that the constant engagement with with the information about the virus has a viral significance of its own so that the panic and the fear is also spreading virally. So I think that the technology, I think, is showing both its potential for uh, informational um, efficiency and at the same time as a, as a, as a agent, um, as a carrier of viral fear. And I, yeah. I think that's happening. Yeah, I think it is definitely happening. Um, Gabby, before we get stuck into the meat of today's conversation, um, the, the conversation you had with me last time on this podcast it had such a profound impact on people. Uh, I was recently asked on episode 100 of this podcast, what was the most impactful conversation I have had so far? And I've got to say, it was it was hard because there were so there were some great conversations. But I actually said the conversation I had with you probably had the most impact on me personally. Um, you know, certainly compared to anything else, I think. And and I think for people who are not familiar with you and are coming to you for the very first time through this conversation, I think it's worth us just briefly summarizing what we covered last time and what your philosophy is. And you know, again, I don't want to. Um, you know, reduce an hour and 40 minute conversation that we had last time down to this. But fundamentally, your belief isn't it that addiction uh, comes down to our experiences in childhoods. And, you know, when I say addiction, a lot of people think, oh, it's about drug abuse or alcohol abuse. But we're talking about something much broader than that, about how, how much of society is now addicted, whether it's addicted to Instagram or shopping or sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. Uh, is that a reasonable, very, very brief summary for people who are new to your work? Well, that, that, no. <laughs> Okay, and, and and the reason why not is is that it's a brief and reasonable summary of an aspect of my work, but yeah. but really, right or wrong, my I, and I believe right, my work was much broader than that. I'm saying that not just addiction, uh, whether to sex, drugs, rock and roll, or substances, but any kind of mental so-called pathology, and not just mental pathology, but much of physical pathology can be traced to uh, childhood experiences and how we cope with those experiences and what those experiences did to our 
physiology, to the functioning of our genes, and to the functioning of our emotional apparatus, which makes us behave in certain ways that either promote or protect us from illness. So what I'm saying is that a lot of what we physicians see in clinical practice, whether it's physical or mental health issues, can be traced to, um, not exclusively, because genetics always comes into it and other factors, but that it can always be traced to um, uh, early experiences in life. And not only early experiences in life, but also experiences throughout life, so that really the fundamental message, if I can sum it up as briefly as I possibly can, is that we're not separate physiological organisms. We're part of a much larger whole, which includes the entire family system, multi-generationally, that we're born into, and the culture in which we grow up in and function in. And so that when it comes to individual disease, it is narrow reductionism to biology to think that illness is only a physiological event in a separate individual when it really manifests an entire life in an entire context, in an entire culture. So really what I'm talking about is the unity of mind and body and the interconnection between the individual and the environment. I think that's the shortest way I can sum it up. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't, you know, I probably could have phrased it a little bit better. Uh, and that that was certainly one of the key aspects we discussed in our previous conversation rather than a summary of your entire work. Uh, and as you know, I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, your, your philosophy. And I think your, at the heart of your philosophy is compassion. And it's a real deep understanding of, why people have ended up where they've ended up, why they behave the way in the way in which they behave. I think we're going to come into that because I think compassion is something that is really interesting to, to observe what's happening in society at the moment when I think we are being quite judgmental. Um, but we'll come to that a little bit later. I think what you just said there about our childhoods and it's really interesting at the moment because many people are, are feeling that this is a very traumatic time for them. And you use the word trauma a lot when talking about uh, people's lives. And I think it's probably worth defining what you mean by trauma right at the start of this conversation. Sure. <clears throat> so trauma, I think, is much more widely experienced than the narrow medical definitions would allow for. Trauma is, uh, really the word comes from a, a Greek word for wound. So trauma is a wound. So when you think uh, metaphorically of a wound, what happens around it, either it's raw and painful, and every time you touch it, you experience extreme pain, or you develop scar tissue over it, and the scar tissue is thick and hard, and it doesn't have nerves, so it doesn't feel, but it's also not very flexible, and it, does, it has no capacity to grow. So trauma is when there's a deep hurt. So take the present uh, COVID, viral crisis a lot of people are responding with extreme fear now fear is a natural response to a threat so there's nothing wrong with that as such but the fear is not universal and it's not shared by everyone to the same degree now people that were hurt in childhood and experienced assault on them they have fear built into their nervous system and into their immune system really and into their whole physiology when something happens later on in life that is 
as a fearful connotation, that old fear gets triggered. In other words, a lot of the, the I'm not talking about the genuine concern and the genuine, the genuine alarm. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the panic that many people are experiencing. That is the triggering of childhood fear rather than just a response to what's happening in the present. So one of the impacts of trauma, of that wound of trauma, is that when things happen in the present, our response reflects some past experience. That's one of the, that's one of the aspects of trauma. The other, aspect, the other aspect is we're just not as flexible in our responses. Our, our, our responses are more programmed rather than chosen by us consciously. Yeah, so w with that in mind, um, and given that a lot of trauma happens in childhood, of course, it doesn't exclusively happen in childhood, but it obviously has a, has a significant impact when it does happen in childhoods. At the moment, certainly here in the UK, things have changed dramatically. All schools are closed. Yeah. Um, all non-essential work has been closed down. People are working from home. Often you have two parent families working from home and their kids are in the house at the same time. And there is this kind of, this cauldron now of emotion and stress and anxiety that probably didn't exist, at least not in the same way, just a few weeks back. And I think that's going to pose and bring it a lot of interesting uh, feelings, a lot of interesting um, dynamics in relationships over the coming weeks and months. I think it's already happening. So if we just dive into childhood for a minute, how can we reduce or minimize the impact that this global pandemic is having on children, both from a perspective of, yes, the virus, or and, and so far it looks as though children are uh, seem to be minimally affected by the virus, even though they can get it and pass it on very, very quickly without showing any symptoms. But I'm talking about stress mm -hmm. and if their parents are stressed around them and their parents are trying to work at home but the kids are around and they want to see their parents and the parents you know without realizing it are starting to put anxiety and stress on their kids that could have implications for the rest of that child's life so i don't want to alarm people but what i'd love to do is have a conversation with you about what sorts of things should we be watching out for and what can parents do yeah well I don't know that um, it's such a broad issue, and, and uh, you know, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it's so collective that I don't know that anything we'll say here will be adequate to the situation. But but let me just come from my perspective. So first of all, what you said about these emotions, stresses didn't exist a week, a few weeks before. Well, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that we've always carried these emotions and stresses. It's just that we were able to distract ourselves from it. So, so one of the, because um, let's face it, you know, when I get to travel and uh, like, it, it so happens that right now I'm at home writing a book, so this is not affecting my work situation. But ordinarily, I'd be traveling and speaking and, and, and teaching and, you know, people would be grateful and I'd be engaged and so on. Well, that's a great way for me to separate myself from my own uh, internal distress. In other words, you know, the work itself can be a distraction. And I think for a lot of us you know and so is it that those emotions weren't there before or is it just that now we have no distraction from them we can't go out and have a drink we can't 
join our friends at the at the football game. We can't go to the pub. We can't gather around the water cooler at work or whatever, you know? So that's that's the one thing. And so from that point of view, I think it's an interesting time. And I think it's time for people to notice the emotions that arise for them. And, and to really question, well, okay, I have this emotion. The crisis is new. It's a novel virus, and it's a novel situation. But are these emotions really novel, or do I kind of know them from the inside already? And to speak about myself, I've been saying for some time now that even though I'm not that personally affected because I get to be at home anyway, and I can go for walks and go for bicycle rides and so on, but there's a strange feeling in my chest and tummy. It's like there's some, something here that isn't usually there. And just this morning, I was thinking, well, is that really new? Or does this really go back to my infancy, perhaps, when there were very strange and threatening times in the world? Second World War, Eastern Europe, Jewish family. And... For the book that I'm writing right now, I'm actually just looking at prenatal stresses and how the stress on the mother translates into stress on the infant in the uterus, physiologically. And that mothers who are anxious prenatally, their children, their brain structure is different in, by the time they get to preschool, and their behavior can be affected. So what I'm saying is, I think a lot of us are programmed very early. And a lot of what's coming out right now is early programming. And that's different from the... That's different from the genuine response to an actual challenge that we're truly facing in the world. Yeah. So I think it's an opportunity for us to observe what's happening. So in terms of telling people what to do, what I'm suggesting here is let's be curious about our reactions. Let's really experience our bodies. Like if, if you feel this tension in your chest, don't distract yourself. Actually pay attention to it and be curious about it and just sit with it. And if we can sit with our own fear, then we can sit with our children's fear. If we try to push through it and pretend that it isn't there and just offer bland reassurances, but at the same time, we're roiled up inside ourselves. Our kids can sense that. So I think the best yeah. thing we can do for our kids is to take care of ourselves. Yeah. I mean, just a, as always, just a wonderful answer. And, um, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I, I actually I spoke to Johan Hari yesterday. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was just saying to him that for me, it feels as though our system is being stress tested at the moment. So, you know, very similar to what you said in the sense that are these emotions really new or in life, you know, very much like, I don't know, let's say you've got a right hamstring problem and that only comes up when you run. Well, if you're walking around in your life and you're walking everywhere, you never experience it. So you think everything's fine. But when you start running, yeah. you realize, oh, oh, my hamstring's hurting. It was always there, but the running has you know, taking you to that threshold now where it's, where it's exposing itself. And, yeah. and very much, I think it's, it's what you're saying is that, is that these emotions were probably there in all of us yet. I, I love that. Um, 
that whole idea about distraction is something I, it's really something I sit with a lot over the last couple of years. It's, it's thinking, why do we do certain behaviors? Why does somebody go to the pub and drink eight to 10 pints of lager or drink a bottle of wine every night? And where does somebody else, for example, you know, scroll Instagram for three or four hours in the evening? Um, and and I, I can't get away from the thought that for many of us, whatever we choose, ultimately it's a distraction. It's a distraction from sitting with ourselves and sitting with our own discomfort. And maybe the opportunity now is, if you want to take this opportunity, instead of distracting yourself with the news, endless news cycles on what's going on, which is obviously an easy thing to do. I love what you're saying. Sit with it. Understand yourself. Understand, is this a new feeling? And I guess what you're fundamentally talking about, Gabor, is awareness. I'm talking about awareness, and we live in a culture globally, uh, but certainly in North America and the UK, that's so so intent on distraction. I mean, you go to the restaurant, there's loud music playing, and five TV screens on the wall all showing different programs. What's that all about? It's about distraction rather than just sitting there quietly and being with each other and ourselves. And um, although we still have the internet and we still have the cell phones and we still have the uh, 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 television set, still the possibility of, of, of distraction have been diminished. Now, I think that for a lot of people, even watching all the news about the virus is a distraction rather than being with how it is for them. Because really, how much time a day do you have to spend reading about the virus to find out what's going on? Five minutes? In five minutes, you can get the latest information. Now, when you spend three hours a day or four hours a day or, or, or compulsively, and I've done that myself because I'm not criticizing others, but, you know, just reading what does The Guardian say about the virus? What does The New York Times say about it? What does this Canadian newspaper or that? You know, what am I doing? I'm actually distracting myself from just how it is for me. And so that even, even reading about the virus can be a distraction from the feelings that the virus has triggered in us. Yeah. It's interesting that the, the, the system being stress tested at the moment. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people said after our first conversation and I've seen on other YouTube videos that you've done, you know, well, that's great, but how do I deal with the trauma? How do I deal with it? And obviously, that's in many ways a million dollar question because there are, there are multiple modalities, I think. Certainly from my view, you may have a different perspective that can help us process uh, trauma once we become aware of it. But in this kind of situation where certainly the volume on everything seems to be turned up to a max, people who already were feeling anxious, are feeling more anxious than ever before. People who didn't realize or, or actually thought that they didn't have a problem with anxiety are now feeling anxious. The process of dealing with that trauma can take time. It can take weeks, months, years sometimes. Um, as I've shared before, I, I'm on my own process with that, with, with a system called Internal Family Systems, IFS, which I found incredibly helpful for me yeah. in terms of my own personal happiness, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, my ability to be a good, or what I hope is a good doctor. Um, that has helped me no end. And I realize now that 
I can look back on previous behaviors and look at the fact that, oh, you were distracting. You weren't happy. You were doing that to gain external validation, to get whatever it was, because I couldn't sit with what was actually going on inside me. And so in this situation where families are rowing at the moment, you know, couples are spending more time with each other than ever before. You know, I think there's going to be some relationship um, issues that are brought to the surface for many people. Um, there is going to be, you know, with, with children. Um, I know this is happening because people have already reached out for help on this saying, look, I'm snapping at my children a lot. And I think there's an interesting problem here where if we snap at our children and they're already scared by this situation, let's say may maybe they're watching the news, but then if if the way we can help them is to be present with our own thoughts and, 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 and present with our own feelings and, and sit with them, that's a long-term process. And I guess what I'm trying to get at it. <laughs> And I don't, I don't think there are some simple tips, but I'm wondering if a parent in that, in that moment is feeling, why are the kids not letting me work? You know, I've got all this work to do and they want to snap. What, is there something they can do? Is it like taking a step, having a deep breath, you know, going outside and then, or is it, is it simply explaining to the kids, Hey guys, look, I'm really stressed at the moment. I know you guys just want to talk to me, but I'm feeling really, really stressed. Can I have five, 10 minutes to myself? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Have you got any practical guidance in the moment? Well, before I get to that, uh, two things. One is I'm just struck or here we are. Um, you trained as a, as an internal medicine specialist or as a specialist? Yeah. Internal medicine initially. And then I moved to family medicine. I know. Um, so I remember that. Um, so between all the years of training and practice that, uh, you know, I've had, Three, over three decades of medical practice and all the three years of training between you and I, which is nothing in our pre training prepared us for this, did it? Yeah. I, and so, so here, we, here we are having this conversation, trying to come up with some wisdom for people. I'm just trying to people, all the people that are listening to us, Rangan and I, we weren't trained in this. No, yeah. nothing. I mean, our experience, we can bring, bring to bear the experience and whatever wisdom we may have gleaned from that, but nothing in our training prepared us for this. This is just bigger than all of us. That's the first point. But the second point is, I'm struck by your phrase about how the system is being, we're being stress tested. Now, that, that has a specific uh, um, connotation in, 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 in medical um, language. You, you put somebody who you suspect has heart disease or you want to rule out that they don't, and you push them through a stress cardiogram. You put them on a treadmill and you have them run and you do a cardiogram, how does the heart respond to the extra oxygen demand yeah. that you bring on? Well, that's what's happening to all of us people. I liked your phrase about that. We're being tested now to see about our emotional oxygen supply. And so, yeah. and so when we're at home snapping at our kids or, 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 or being tense with ourselves or whatever happens with our spouses, this is the stress test. And and the the the, the stress cardiogram, cardiogram will reveal, which is walking to go back to your analogy of the hamstring. Um, the stress cardiogram will reveal the real state of your heart, whereas just lying in bed will not. Yeah. Uh, or walking even slowly in the street will not. You know, unless you've got really severe heart disease. So yes, I really like that way of putting it. That that the system is being stressed, stress tested, and not just on the individual, 
but also on a social level. Now, I haven't answered your question. I, I know it's easier for me to theorize than just to answer your question, but <laughs> what, what actually to do. But yes, I think awareness, as you said, and if I notice that tension in me, that's a, I don't believe in timeouts in parenting in terms of punitive timeouts. But I certainly believe in the parent taking a timeout and saying, you know, I just noticed how tense I am. I need to go on the balcony and take a few breaths. Or I need to sit and, and just think. Or I just need to listen to a piece of music right now to calm my autonomic nervous system. You know, so in other words, do something that we ordinarily don't do in our, most of us in our lives, which is to allow ourselves to have our upset emotions and give them some space without acting them out on the people that are close to us. So take that time and, and, and do check in. And don't be ashamed to acknowledge your vulnerability and your upset. But don't make it your, yeah. don't make it your child's problem. Yeah. I mean, look, we're recording this at 6 p.m. UK time. So, um, you know, just to, to share an experience that just happened with me, like I've, you know, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Um, yeah. Generally speaking, I always think things are going to be okay. And I, on a personal level, um, you know, I'm not getting too panicky or anxious about what's going on in the world at the moment. So I, I think I would have done in the past, but at the moment I'm not. For whatever reason, I'm not. But what I am doing, and I'm all, I'm super aware that if I, as I, um, express what's been going on with me i have no doubt that you may you may dissect it out for me shortly and tell me what i really mean by it um in a, in a good way but i have been putting a little bit of pressure on myself to communicate regularly with my uh, followers um in public i was on bbc news two or three times last week on the radio a few times and i really felt that at this moment when people are really feeling scared. I really wanted to go on and actually try and be a voice of calm and reason and sh share some positivity. I've also put a lot of pressure on myself to put out lots of information on social media to try and help people, more podcasts to help people. And I realized today I wasn't feeling great just a few hours ago. I was feeling, I actually said to my wife, I said, hey, babe, you know what? I, I, think, I think I just need to chill out a little bit and actually just forget about doing all that for, for half a day or, or one day. It doesn't matter. You know, I need to just, just be aware that this, I don't need to put this much pressure on myself. Anyway, the point I was trying to get to is that my kids are at home at the moment and, you know, at about five o'clock, you know, cause I'd been working most of the day. They're like, Oh daddy, daddy, can we play outside? And instead of snapping at them, cause I thought I've got to check the Skype connections working. I've got to check my microphones, all this kind of stuff. I just said, Hey darling, listen, I would love to play with you at the moment, mm -hmm. but you know, I've got this podcast. I'll be really looking forward to doing with Gabal Mate and, and what I, and you know, said Gabal Mate, well, hey dad, go ahead. That's fantastic. Well, he did actually, but I don't know what I was going to say <laughs> that, but he did actually say that. <laughs> but, um, I just explained it to him. I said, look, but I'll tell you what, if you fancy a game of table tennis for five, 10 minutes, that's going to really help daddy oh. unwind a little bit because I've been feeling quite tense. So if you want to do that, that'll be great. Mm. And you know what? I've realized, and that's just one instant, but I found that when I explain things to, to the kids, yeah. and my son's nine, but I do this with my daughter who's seven as well, yeah. that is something I don't think I used to do five, six years ago. That's something I've learned. Yeah. I've got to say my wife has been incredible here because 
she's always wanting to explain things and explain feelings to the to the kids. And I think I very much learned from her there. But you know what? They get it. And they're like, yeah, okay, daddy, cool. I get it. And it's, it's, I'm sharing that because A, I want to, but B, maybe that's going to be of use to someone listening to this when they're in that situation. I would just be honest with your kids because I think a lot of the time they prefer that than just you snapping at them and saying, uh, or, or not you, I'm not trying to judge anyone else. I'm saying me, then snapping. I'll be, no, 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 you know, I've, I've said I haven't got time. I, I think we're going to have very two different, two very different outcomes depending on how you interact with your kids in, in those moments. Well, I, th- I think you shared a beautiful example. First of all, you didn't make the kid wrong for wanting to be with you or leave me alone. I got work to do. You said, I'd love to spend time with you. It's just such and such is happening. And then you actually explained what it was like for you. And not only that, you offered them a possibility of actually um, um, helping you. Yeah. Now, it's not that we should expect our kids to help us, but kids want responsibility. And when they're able to handle it, hey, if playing a game with you would help you calm down, isn't that great? I'm, yeah. I must be a very important person, you know? So, I mean, that, that's great. Um, going back before then, I'm sure that if you've done Dick Schwartz's uh, internal family systems work, you can realize that, that, that when you, say you put pressure on yourself, you'd probably say a part of you was putting pressure on you. And, 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 and at some point you might want to, um, if, if you haven't already, inquire about that part. Well, why is that part pressuring me? And, and I'm sure you're going to find out. I don't have to tell you, do I? Well, I mean, have you done that inquiry? I've, I've been sitting with that. Like I've, I've not got to the bottom of it, but I've, t- I've certainly observed that. And I've been, you know, writing a few thoughts out and thinking, where is that coming from? And I'm sort of, which part of that is me? And I have a, again, I think I need to spend a, f- a bit more time sitting with my thoughts and not distracting myself with work and trying to help others when actually maybe it's time to sort of spend a bit more time helping myself. But, you know, I think I've got a pretty good idea of where this might come from in my early childhood in terms of what I perceived was important for me to do. Um, so, I, yeah, I would love to spend a bit more time there. But, yes, I agree. It is a part of me. It's not really me, is it? It's a part of me. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, a couple of things. One is um, I think a lot of us that go into medicine, we have this um, – messianic mission to save the world you know um now that's different from a conscious decision to help people yeah so i'm not talking about yes we're here to help people and it's a sacred task that we take on but but the pressure behind it sometimes that i gotta save the world and if and if i'm not doing enough then i'm not enough that's childhood trauma so in my case I mean, I can pretty much guess what it was in your case, but in my case, it was having a very unhappy, depressed mother when I was very, very young, and it was my job to make her feel better. And and and, and if I didn't, I was I was not fulfilling my task, you know. So that that pressure always comes from some childhood programming. Number one, number two. I'm glad that you listen to your body, and because you know, you know, in my book, when the body says no. Yeah. Literally, this is an example of it. Your body starts saying, no, no, this is too much. And then you start going. So I think people need to listen to their bodies. So really what you're describing here is um, 
somebody who from childhood programming puts pressure on themselves. No, the pressure you put on yourself, that's different from your genuine desire to communicate. That's different from your genuine desire to be there for people. It's, 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 it's different from your genuine assumption of responsibility because you created uh, yourself as a healer, not just in the clinical individual sense, but also in a larger sense. And so people look to you. And so you, that's a natural process and it's good. That's got nothing to do with pressure. Yeah. That's just a choice you make. I'm going to choose this. I'm not going to choose this. I'll do this much. I won't do that. The pressure is always in childhood. So what you're describing here is just what we're talking about, about trauma, is that there's something, some part of you that still believes that in order to validate your existence, you've got to put pressure on yourself to do more than your body can bear. And you recognize that. Yeah. That's really what we're asking people to do, is to just be aware of themselves. Just taking a quick break in the conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's show. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me that getting regular therapy has really helped me both in my personal life as well as my professional life. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. Now, there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network, which may not be available locally in the area in which you live. And the service is available all over the world. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or even phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. You can visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash live more. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. There is a special offer of 10% off your first month for listeners of this podcast at betterhelp.com forward slash live more. For people who heard that and thought, okay, I now I'm thinking about certain situations. I can feel things, you know, like for me, when I'm feeling that pressure, I get it in my upper right back. I, I know exactly where it is. And for me, it's become... As I become aware, it's become my, it's like a warning signal for me. It's like, ah, you know, there it is. Okay, what's going on? What's going on in life? Okay, cool. You, you're putting, you know, too much is going on. Bloody, bloody, but, you know, it's, it's, I think awareness is always key because many people, I think, are walking around oblivious to what the, what signs their body is, what signals the body is giving to them. They're just sort of medicating it or drinking their way through it or distracting their way to the point where they don't feel it. But, you know, you mentioned before you feel something, you felt something before this kind of, was it an uneasy feeling in your chest or abdomen, I think you said? Mostly the chest, yeah, the upper chest. And, and for someone who's thinking, okay, I can do that, what should they then do? Like, there's, a, there's awareness, there's observing it, and then it, is there something they can do after that? Or is, it, is the main thing just to sit with it and be aware? 
Well, um, turn that question around. If your child was feeling anxious, what would you do? You would, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd ask, ask them what's going on. You would say, you'd talk softly, you'd treat them with compassion. You'd say, hey, look, you know, what are you feeling anxious about? Just, um, you'd try and help them, wouldn't you? Yes, and all that's based on, first of all, just being with them, right? Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't ignore them. You wouldn't just get on with your life and, 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 yeah. and, and okay, never mind. You're anxious, but I'm going to go and, you know, just, so it's that attention. I think that's the biggest part of it. And then the attention plays out in the ways that you just described, you know, what's happening, what you feel anxious about, but you'd hold them, you'd be with them, you'd accompany them. It's the, it's your presence. It's your capacity to be present with them. That's the soothing influence on the child. And then yeah. what you say is actually secondary. You know, what you would not do is talk them out of it, ignore them, make them wrong for it, um, give them advice that they didn't ask for, you know. Um, so just attending, I think, is really the answer itself. Because when you once you attend, and, 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 and if you can attend to yourself, I mean, I, I teach this method called compassionate inquiry. And, and if you can just bring that compassion to yourself, oh, you got this feeling here. Okay, well, let's just sit with it. Let's just notice it. Let's just allow it. Let's not say there's anything wrong with you. Let's not um, try and talk you out of it. Let's not ignore it. I believe that that process, you know, and, and then, okay, is this a familiar feeling? Have I experienced this before? Oh, yeah. It's not a, you know, um, that attention. I think that's the that's the healing part and and or the healing process. And you might have to do that three or four times a day. As you would with your child. It doesn't take a long time. Yeah, if the the big feeling that's coming up for me as we're having this conversation is that for some of us could this global situation for all the you know, for all the the problems that, that, that are there with it. And, and of course, there's going to be, um, you know, the, the, the rightfully people are concerned over the people who are going to get sick. Um, and and, and neither one of us is trying to minimize that, but just, just trying to look at the other side for a minute. For some of us, could this be the biggest opportunity for growth that we have ever lived through? You know, many of us have not stress tested the system. Certainly, you know, I'm... Uh, in my early 40s, I don't recall a time like this ever. Um, I, I actually, before the, the strict self-isolation rules came in in the UK, about a week and a half ago, I went round to my um, elderly neighbor who's 91, who I hadn't really seen for about six weeks. And I, I thought, well, you should really just go and check that she's okay. Her kids don't live nearby. She's by herself. There's all this kind of isolation. So I went round. Um, I nipped in, checked everything was okay. And I said to her, hey, look, does any part of this remind you of the war, yeah. uh, the Second World War? And she said, no, not at all. I said, really? She goes, yeah, then for me, she, this is what she said to me. She said, then we had this sort of common enemy. We all came together. We congregated. We did things together. This feels like it's invisible, and I don't know where the enemy is. Yes. 
And I found that really, really interesting as an idea that, you know, coming full circles, what I was saying, it's this idea that we've never experienced anything like this before. So if we look and if we pay attention, we could maybe discover things about ourselves that we've never had the opportunity to observe in the past. Yeah, I was thinking about just before you talked about the war, that's exactly the question that was coming up in my mind. And, and to go back to that person you, you mentioned, not, not only is the enemy invisible, you're compassionate and, uh, and, 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 and giving next to a neighbor who's bringing you your groceries might be carrying the enemy into your porch. You know, so that's really weird. It's, it's in that sense, this is, this is something new. Isn't it? Um, so I think that's too individually, and I think it's also too socially. I mean, it may be too early to talk about what we need to learn here or what some of the lessons are, but I mean, I, I can't help. I mean, I, I think systemically, and plus I'm writing a new book about, my new book is The Myth of Normal Illness and Health in an Insane Culture. That's the book I'm working on right now. Wow. So I'm looking at the large cultural pictures. So you're speaking to me from the UK. Well, there's some questions that at some point will need to be asked. And maybe now is not the time just yet. But they occur to me. To what degree does the, the cutbacks in the, natural, in, in the National Health Service have, have they impaired your country's capacity to respond to the current crisis? Mm. And there's already been some questions and articles about that in the British press. I've seen that. To what degree does a, a society with huge um, divergences uh, of wealth and power, high levels of inequality, and we know from Sir Michael Marmot and other British researchers, the health impacts of, 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 of inequality, and of course, it's the people that with underlying health conditions who are most prone to fall victim to this disease. Well, that's not just a part of the virus. That's not just a viral effect. That's also a social effect. So I won't say more about that now, except to mention that your question about what can we learn here is applicable not just at an individual level, but also on the social level. And I think it's very important that when we've dealt with the acute crisis, that those conversations really begin in earnest and very, very deeply. Yeah. On the individual level, I think we're, well, I think certain things are becoming clear. One is, um, as I said in another conversation recently, isn't this just clarifying what our values really are, what's really important in life? Yeah. How much of what we were engaged in and thought was essential four weeks ago seems relatively trivial now compared to how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about each other, what communality that we have, how much solidarity we can experience and generate or receive, uh, how much love and compassion we can experience for ourselves and others. Aren't, just, aren't these just the most important things? And doesn't it just warm your heart when you see these uh, videos from Italy with people serenading each other from their rooftops and their balconies, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so I, I, I think that's already emerging. Is what's imp what's really important to us. And the other thing that's emerging is, which goes along with the entire conversation that we've been having, is what are our internal resources that we can contact to get her through this. 
I mean, this really is uh, training in a certain sense. It's like heavy lifting. Heavy lifting makes your muscles stronger if you don't strain yourself too much. And, and, and so what internal resources can we muster, look to, and find um, to help us deal with this current um, threat to our well-being? As, as individuals and as a society. So I think there's powerful teachings here. We might be too close to it yet to know what the teachings will be, but we can do what you're doing already, which is to look upon this as a learning opportunity. Yeah. And, 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 and and as we go through it, keep banging ourselves, keep asking ourselves, um, okay, what is here to be learned? What is here to be learned? What can I learn today? Yeah. You mentioned inequality and... You know, we know all around the world, but certainly here in the UK, that you know, depending on which postcode you live in, your health uh, outcome, your 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 lifespan could be up to ten years lower. And it's to do with income and poverty and all kinds of other factors, which are probably the biggest determinant of health, actually. Um, and it, it's interesting for me that when we talk about equality and inequality in that context, we can also look at it in a global context in the sense that. We've been so individualistic as a society on an individual level. It's all about me. You know, can I earn what I need to earn and actually buy the house and get the job that I want, irrespective of what's going on around me? Countries have been doing that. We need to make sure we're the strongest and we've got our everything in order. But hold on a minute. Now we've got this global problem. It doesn't really matter whether you're a rich country or a poor country in the sense that that virus can still come and penetrate yeah. in. And therefore, it's like, well, is it possible for us to be individually well, whether you talk about a, a person or a country, if all around us is unwell? And I don't think it is. Well, and that's another big lesson here, isn't it? Because we live our lives, as you say, as if we could just avert our eyes from what's happening in the rest of the world. But if we're honest about it, and I may, I've said this before, but... What, what, what if all of a sudden I told you that there's a preventable illness that kills 800,000 people in Europe every year, tens of thousands in the UK, uh, 15,000 here in Canada, 8 million around the world. If I told you that there's such a preventable disease, you'd say, well, yeah, what is it? And how is it preventable? Why don't we prevent it? Well, there is such a disease. It's called air pollution. Air pollution kills that many people every year. The numbers that the coronavirus has claimed so far is nowhere, I mean, nowhere near that. Now, which is not to say to minimize the, the viral threat, but it's to say that we do live our lives most of the time oblivious to reality. And, and this virus is waking, waking us up to the fact that we're all living in the same world and what happens in one country affects what happens in another country. Now we're aware of that. But that's true all the time. So that so 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 perhaps we can come out of this with more awareness of that generally, not just at these um, uh, sudden catastrophes. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is that uh, all around the world there are many areas where there is illnesses that are rampant because of poverty, because of um, lack of health services, and lack of proper food, and so on that claim many, many, many lives. It's just that here in the West, we're shielded from that. So we don't have to 
make ourselves aware. And then there's a third level, which is, which is to me, we're, we're getting into the realms of evil. Um, there are places in the world where illness is imposed because of war and intervention and occupation and, and, and exploitation. Um, I'm thinking of a place like Gaza, which I've visited, and I'm, I'm making a political statement here, except to say that in that small area, there's all those hundreds and tons of people cramped together. And because of the political situation and the, and the, and the blockade, which is largely supported by the West, um, only 5% of the water is potable. Could we at least in these times lift those sanctions on those countries? Could they at least in these times not lift the sanctions on Iran, which is make it, makes it hard for them to import medical equipment? Yeah. Um, in other words, could we be just, at least, you know, the, the, I think the UN, some UN, maybe the, the Director General of the UN or the Secretary General called for an international ceasefire in areas of conflict. They just took this virus over, let's just not, sh not shoot each other. But what if we called an international moratorium on anything that makes people suffer, that, that we're doing that makes other people suffer? So, so what if, just, you know, we can go back to your politics later if you want to, but just now, could we get come together as a human race and, 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 and just be kind? So, yeah, these are big questions. And I think the, the virus is impelling us to ask these questions and, and, and to remember these questions when the virus is gone. That's the key, isn't it? Let's remember this yeah. when we're through the acute phase of this. And yeah. one thing I'm doing myself, and I'm asking a lot of people to do who are asking me for advice, is just write down a few of your thoughts every day, like little things that you're now appreciative of and grateful for. Uh, I did a post yesterday on my social media channels about five things that came at the top of my head that I just have maybe taken for granted in the past, but really, really value now. You know, going to a cafe to meet up with a friend. Yeah. Like now that I can't do it, I'm like, yeah. oh God, wouldn't that be amazing? Or I do something called Parkrun on Saturdays um, where you congregate in your local community and hundreds of you run together. Yeah. I think, wow, I can't, w just the ability to go and do that will be phenomenal. My 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 elderly mother lives nearby, mm. but she's meant to be self-isolating for 12 weeks. So just to give my 79-year-old mum a hug, like the small things that were available to me three weeks ago, that I probably took for granted. And I think if we make a, a like a journal every day and write these things down, mm -hmm. when this is all gone, when it's all over, we can look back and reflect and go, you know, isn't maybe that was something we should all try and do is write our own journal throughout this. Mm -hmm. It's a way of sitting with ourselves, understanding ourselves, and also it's a way of not forgetting when it's all over. Was it Samuel Pepys that wrote the journal of the plague years? I think so. Well, it's a good idea. I think idea. it was, yeah. Why don't we all keep a journal of the plague days, you know, or maybe plague weeks or, for God forbid, plague months, although it looks like it. Yeah, that's a great yeah. idea. I, you know, I, I hope someone who's listening to this, a few people think, yeah, that might be a good idea to do. Um, Gabo, you, you, you mentioned, like, let's be kind to, to one another. Let's, at least now, let's lift sanctions and just do the right thing. Yeah. And one thing that I've always been... Well, I've always talked about it as something that I think is the most important skill 
for any human being, but also certainly any healthcare professional, is compassion, is ability to connect and really non-judgmentally look at that person in front of you. And it's really interesting to observe what's happening at the moment when it comes to compassion. So you can, you know, there's people out there who, um, you know, let's say people who are not practicing social distancing, who are, you know, refusing to follow what the government have asked people to do and are getting together and congregating with their friends or people who are perceived to be panic buying and therefore the supermarket shelves are now empty. It's really interesting that we can be quite judgmental about those other people who are behaving in that way. Um, and uh, and it's something I've, I've mentioned recently is that, you know, I, I think about, I've thought about panic buying a lot recently and this idea that are people really panic buying? I'm sure some people are, but most people are probably just buying a little bit more than they would have done in the past. Mm. And therefore, when they go to the shelf, the shelf's full and the first person buys a little bit more, the second person buys a little bit more, then at some point there's going to be someone who empties that shelf. But all they were doing was buying a little bit more than they would normally do. And then someone will post a photo of that on social media and go, God, who are these people who are panic buying? They should be ashamed of themselves. And I'm thinking, I'm not criticizing people for saying that. I'm just observing that, you know, this situation, I think, has brought out the best in humanity, but also sort of, it's also exposing the worst as well, as any stress test would do. And is this, I'm interested in your observations on the judgment that we can have on other people, particularly at times like this. Well, it's great to speak with you because every time you speak, my mind just starts generating thought bubbles start arising under the surface of my mind. Um, first thing, here in Vancouver, there was a couple who go around cleaning out all the shelves of major stores of cleaning of cleaning fluid or cleaning wipes. Then they sell them at a profit. You know, you think, who would do that? You know? Um, no, there's two, there's, two ways of asking, there's two ways of asking who would do that. One is who would do that as a judgment or curiosity. Oh, well, who actually would do that? Yeah. And how insecure they must actually feel in the world and, and how much they, they must be cut off from their own communal sense of humanity. So what happened to them? These people that congregate and they ignore the recommendations, where did they learn to distrust authority so much? Usually, that's a, that can be a trauma response as well. Like when, 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 when early, there's a, a whole lot of ways to respond to trauma. But one way to respond is, I'm never going to trust authority again. I'm just going to do whatever I want. But because the authority that I did trust in when I was an infant really let me down. So if, if so, for, so even we can look at these people compassionately as well. And the other thing that came up for me is that there's such thing, there's such thing as healthy shame. So in writing my new book, I'll be looking at Aboriginal societies and in 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 in, in, in what we call so-called primitive societies, um, which is how we actually evolved in small band hunter-gatherer groups, and we lived that way for millions and hundreds of thousands of years. That was our evolutionary niche. When you look at them, those societies that still carry those vestiges or those ways of life today, fewer and fewer, individual accumulation 
is seen as a weakness, as some kind of an illness. And if somebody, you know, uh, they go hunting and some young guy shoots his, does his first kill, you know, everybody criticizes him and they, they, they ritually uh, will make small of it. Why? Because they don't want anybody to get a big head. Right. They want to say, okay, you're doing this for the community. You know, it's, it's, it's not malicious, it, but, they, but, but it's not about individual achievement and, and, and individual accumulation. That wealth for them actually lies in communality. So that in a lot of these cultures, including here in the West Coast of Canada, big celebrations would involve people giving away their wealth to others. And yeah. real wealth was in how other people regarded you and how you connected with them. So, um, this crisis again shows how far we've come away from our roots. Yeah. And, and, and when you think of yourself or, 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 or any of ourselves, when do we feel best? When we have gathered something to ourselves or when we've given it? You know? And most people will say, I feel so much better about myself, so much more peace, so much more joy. When I'm doing, for, when I'm giving, not compulsively, but out of free choice. But that goes yeah. contrary to the way we're programmed in a society. So again, this this to go back to our theme of learning. This 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 viral crisis is really maybe teaching us something about our, our true human nature. Yeah. Are you and your wife dealing with this in different ways? Uh, well, we do go for a walk every day. Yeah. I'm just going to, I don't know if I share. Um, I'm spending much of my time at my computer writing my book. My wife's an artist, so she draws a lot. She paints, she's not painting, she's drawing a lot these days. But she's also doing cross, uh, uh, crossword puzzles. She just yeah. thought a, a great way to just relax. So she's doing, I guess that, She's doing what she needs to, but but if you're asking me, are we dealing with it emotionally differently? Um, and I guess, let me just clarify, the point of my question wasn't really to inquire um, about you and her individually. It was also more really the broader question, do you feel and do you see that men and women of course, there's going to be huge individual differences within that. But broadly speaking, do, can we say that men and women tend to deal with these things in different ways? Are there some broad stro strokes that we can we can explain that with? Well, there's a lot of work that's been done on the different emotional styles of emotional coping styles of men and women, and uh, yeah. uh, women tend to be more in touch with their emotions in general. Um, they tend to come more from the right side of the brain, which is more holistic and, 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 and inclusive, um, whereas men tend to move towards the left side, which is more, uh, this is, this is not exclusive and it's not sure. gender based, but in general, um, more, um, going through explanations and intellectual formulations and so on. Uh, as to how that's showing up right now in the current viral situation, that'll be an interesting study, won't it? Yeah. To, to look back later on and say, well, how did men and women differentially, if there was a differential, 
how do they differentially deal with what's going on? I don't know that I have an answer to that right now. I think another thing that would be really interesting to look at at some point in the future when the dust has settled is, you know, and it's that, it's that, it's that sort of slight seesaw that I was mentioning to you before, this idea that, okay, all these measures that are being taken, these kind of frankly never been seen before measures by countries all around the world are to limit the spread of the virus. So we're asking people to isolate, well, certainly physically isolate themselves from each other, not go about their everyday lives, not congregate with other human beings as social beings. You know, in the UK at the moment, we've been told we can go outside once a day to take exercise in the form of a walk, cycle or run. And we can also go to the shops once a week or we're being encouraged to. I mean, this is pretty restrictive compared to what normal life used to feel like. Um, but what I'm interested in is, are we going to look back and, or, or it would be interesting to look back at some point in the future for all the lives we may hopefully save from uh, getting you know severely affected by the virus and then needing intensive care and all this kind of stuff. On the flip side, what sort of damage are we potentially going to do to society with this isolation, with this anxiety? Um, because I feel, and I, I so hope I'm wrong on this, but I, I, I imagine that we may well see in a few months, you know, a, a litany of um, mental health issues and anxiety and depression and all kinds of things on the back of this. And then it's that whole acute versus chronic piece that we're not taking these chronic things like air pollution and mental health and all these things which kill millions of people each year seriously, but we are with the virus. And I think there's a really interesting thought experiment there is that, you know, will it have been worth it? I don't mean to sound, um, you know, I'm very conscious. I'm very, I don't mean to sound as though I, I, I think we should be taking the measures to protect life, right? So I'm not saying we shouldn't be. But will we look back and go, what, you know, was there an unexpected consequence of doing that? Well, I, I've had the same question come up in my mind. Um, let me tell you a quick story. Just before you called me, a friend of mine called me, uh, another retired physician. She, on, she goes on her bicycle and she delivers what's called Meals on Meals. Uh, meals on Wheels. So they, they take food to, it's a program here in Vancouver. They take food to shut-ins and old people and so on. And... Uh, my friend Elaine, who was delivering the food, um, there's an elderly Hungarian lady who is among her clients. And uh, they don't share language at all. The woman does not speak English at all. And Elaine speaks no Hungarian. And uh, she called me just now, just before you called me, uh, because the woman wants her to come closer like she usually does, but Elaine won't. But, I mean, but because of the language barrier, Elaine couldn't explain why I can't come close to you. And the woman's getting more and more upset. So she finally uh, called me and said, would you talk to her in Hungarian and explain? And, and I did. And this woman had never heard of the, of the pandemic because she speaks no English. And so the media, elderly woman, the, the, the English language media, which is what happens here, means nothing to her. She was unaware. And so... Imagine the, the bewilderment. Also, the world changes, and then even this person who brings you her food won't come near her. You know? So that's, 
it's hitting a lot of people. Now, the question that you're asking, I think we're too close to it right now, but it's occurred, yeah. it's occurred to me as well. At one point, do we decide that the social disruption and economic disruption and the anxiety um, well, is more than we can bear? And that, how do you make the decision as to what's more important? Saving lives now or a functioning society in the long term? And um, I, I even hesitate to raise the question because just like you, I, I'm cautious not to undermine any, anybody's um, uh, commitment to, to, to participate fully in exact and, and to follow the directions and advice of the authorities. I think this is a time where we just have to really do that. Yeah, so do I. And, and I want to, you know, just re-echo what you just said. That it was really just a thought experiment rather than I've had the same. we should do things differently. Well, um, exactly. And I've had the same thought. And I think that'll be one of those long-term questions that once we're looking back in retrospect, we'll be able to engage with and maybe learn from. But at yeah, this point, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm certainly an optimist in the sense that I think I really hope that we have been given such a jolt yeah. And with, with so many of us starting to appreciate the little things in life that, frankly, most of us, if not all of us, certainly many of us took for granted in the past. If we could hold on to that, there could be something really beautiful on the other side of this, potentially, for society. Uh, I certainly hope that's going to happen. I, I'm an optimist. Uh, I always have been. Are you an optimist? Well, um Human beings have tremendous capacity for transformation and depth and, and spiritual and emotional growth. They also have tremendous capacity for denial and forgetting and, 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 and distracting and, and going back to business as usual. I don't know how it's going to play out. Um, yeah. I think it'll play out in both ways uh, through a society, certainly on an individual level. I think on the individual level, there'll be a lot of people that will have learned a lot of valuable lessons here about what's important. On the social level, I don't know. Uh, in fact, I'm rather pessimistic, at least in the short term. Look, in Britain, if I remember correctly, there's one study that I read that I collected for my new book. Something like 10,000 people have died because of austerity in Britain. Would that be a startling statistic to you, or is that something that fits in with your awareness. So I've, I've come across very similar statistics to that. I must say I haven't dug deep into them, so I, I don't know yeah. on what yeah. that is based, but I certainly have heard that for sure. Yeah, so that's one, one piece of information that's resting on my computer somewhere. But we seem quite content to allow that. Yeah. And, 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 to, um, and, 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 and to persist in it. And that's a lot of people dying. A lot more people than I hope will die in Britain of this particular disease. So, will this teach us when other catastrophes have not? Um, I don't know. And, and, and that, that, that comes to a whole social issue of, uh, of it's, you know, there's a social structure and there's a, there's a, there's, there's a power structure uh that that is invested in being things in things being the way they have been 
Yeah. I don't know that that's going to change. And the question is, will people demand a change or are we going to just be so grateful and happy and joyful to go back to our lives that we'll forget about these larger questions? Yeah. I, I rather think in the short term, that's more likely, I think. Yeah. It's a great point. And, you know, the, uh, we've, we've got things like, um, Bill Gates's TED talk from 2015 yeah. where he's, he's sort of said this was going to happen. Uh, other people have so have done that. There's someone called Devi Sridhar, who I'm hopefully talking to soon. His professor of global health at, um, at University of Edinburgh, who's well worth following for people on Twitter at the moment in terms of her thoughts on the pandemic and how we're dealing with it. It's really, really interesting that, a lot of people had been predicting this, yet a lot of us, a lot of certainly the UK, didn't spend the millions, probably the billions that were going to be necessary to be adequately equipped to deal with it. Whereas now we're going to have to spend trillions on the economic uh, implications of it. So even with that knowledge, we weren't prepared to spend it's like that prevention versus cure piece, right? We, we knew, well, the scientists knew, but we still didn't do anything about it. And now we're going to be paying way, way more on the back end, trying to fix something that potentially could have been uh, sorted at the front end. And the other, the other yes, and the other big, big, question that brings up, big question that brings up is, <clears throat> is there something about our way of life and the way we relate to nature and the earth that somehow potentiates this kind of a crisis? And I've, I've already seen those arguments being made, of those yeah. questions being raised. That's another huge uh, inquiry, I think, that would need to be held with whatever result, but I think we need to look at it. And so the real question, again, is, are we going to remember the big questions when this is over? And, and, yeah. and, and are we going to be committed to um, delving into those questions and the depth that they, they require and deserve? And, yeah. um, or, or will we get naturally enough, perhaps, caught up in trying to catch up to what we've lost economically and in other ways. Yeah. Well, Gabo, it's, it, for me, it, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and just the opportunity to sit with you and, and just have a conversation is something I find incredibly stimulating and incredibly inspiring. I, I've said on many times, I think your voice is one of the most important voices globally right now in terms of health, um, in terms of compassion in terms of addiction and i'm really excited that you're writing a new book uh, when is the new book coming out do we know yet or is well, it still too early to say it's meant to come out next year um i've been i have to confess i've been struggling with it as a matter of fact you mentioned internal family systems i actually called dick schwartz and had a conversation with him because i needed some help because a part of me was really just ready to to be in panic about did i this time bite of more than I can chew. This book writing, is it more than I can actually fulfill on? And I find it a helpful conversation to get in touch with that panicky little inadequate part of mine, you know? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, we all need help at this time, you know, and, and I yeah. maybe a, a final message I, I think you and I would agree on. And by the way, it's also wonderful to speak with you. I just really enjoy our conversation. I just like the quality of, 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 of connection that, that, that experience when I'm talking with you. But, but maybe one lesson we can all learn is let's just be vulnerable people and ask for help when we need it. All yeah. us, you know. I think that's a, a wonderful place to finish this. I really hope people found our sort of 
intellectual meanderings sort of going from one place to another we you know again no preparation it was more trying to catch up and see what we can what we can share about what is currently going on and i think you know except that it's okay to feel the pressure and be vulnerable and need help that's quite a nice message to people i think and i really want to just highlight what you said early just you know try not to distract yourself sit with what sit with your feelings take the opportunity um you know good luck with book writing um good luck with your walks around where you live and i very much hope you're in london for part of the book tour when it does come out which i'm sure it will do and i look forward to having a face-to-face conversation with you next time so take care thank you thank you that concludes today's episode of the podcast how did you find it did it make you think and reflect i really hope you got a lot of value out of it as gabel said at the end there maybe one lesson we can all learn is just to be vulnerable and ask for help when we need it as always do think about one thing you can take from this podcast and put into practice in your own life will it be to try and sit in silence a little bit more to really understand and get in tune with what you are feeling as i mentioned in the conversation today i think a daily journaling practice is so so beneficial and helpful and i really would encourage you guys to give it a go now if you did enjoy today's show please do take 30 seconds to go onto your podcast app and give the show a review it is so so important as the more reviews the show has the more prominence It is given by providers like Apple. Now, I'm really keen for this content to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, I need your help. Of course, you can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels or simply tell your friends about the show in the good old-fashioned way. Now, I really do appreciate your support. The show notes page for this episode is drchastgy.com forward slash 106, where I have linked to Gabble's website, his books, his social media channels, as well as some brilliant talks that he has done online. Please do let Gabble and I know what you thought of today's show on social media. Now, having a supportive community is so, so important at the moment. And if you are looking for one, I can highly recommend my own private Facebook community. It is called Dr. Chastity Four Pillar Community Tribe, and it is a really supportive place to get inspiration, motivation, as well as new ideas and tips from other members. It's also a great place to go and share what you are struggling with and get support from the community. There are well over 10,000 engaged members in there so far. You can just head over to Facebook to get involved. Looking after your health has never been more important than right now. It will not only help you in the short term, but it's also going to help you be more resilient to the challenges that we all face in the coming weeks and months. I know that it is hard to access books at the moment, so shops are shut and Amazon have long delivery times. But don't forget about audiobooks. All of my previous books are available in this format and you can download them immediately from providers like Amazon and Audible. A big thank you to Vedata Chatterjee for producing this week's podcast and to Richard Hughes for audio engineering. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back very shortly with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, 
you live more. I'll see you next time.